Thank you for being here. Thank you for your presence and for blessing everybody else with your presence here tonight. We're continuing our series on uh, the Minor Prophets. We're going to talk tonight about Haggai, and just so you know where we're going the next couple weeks. Uh, so this would technically be the end of a quarter, uh, but because I just kind of do whatever I want. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, because I decided that instead of cramming the last four into two weeks, we would sort of stretch it out and go two weeks over the quarter. Uh, so next week, we'll talk about uh, Zechariah, and then the week after that, we'll be in Malachi. So we're going to bleed into March just a little bit with these minor prophets. And then after that, I'm really excited. Kevin Mims and I are going to co-teach a class uh, where we'll do it sort of conversational style, and we're going to talk about friendships and relationships and doing the hard work of friendship and being friends and being the kind of friends that Jesus uh, calls us to be. So that'll be the third week in March. So uh, make sure that uh, you get excited and be, be here for that, because I think that'll be a, a great class, a different style of doing things. But tonight we're going to talk about Haggai, and just to sort of give us some um, context, historical context. Here's a timeline of sort of what was going on. If you remember a few weeks ago, if you were here on the Sunday morning, we were doing the Fresh Start or the Myth of the Fresh Start series. We talked about Ezra. We talked about sort of that time period. Uh, before Ezra came onto the scene, um, there was a wave of exiles that came back from Babylon. So you remember that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and carried the Jews off into captivity, and Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed about 586 BC, and the Jews were carried off into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, but then Babylon fell to the Persians, and then some of the exiles were able to go back. And the first wave of exiles came back uh, under Zerubbabel in 538 BC. They started to rebuild the temple, but then because of the oppression and sort of opposition that they faced, they stopped building the temple. So they laid the foundation, and that was about it. And then, so the, the temple reconstruction stopped for about 18 years until people like uh, Haggai and Zechariah showed up on the scene um, and I don't know why I put Zephaniah on there. That was last week's lesson. That should say Haggai. Um, Haggai and Zechariah in 520 BC uh, showed up on the scene and prophesied and told them what they needed to hear in order to restart building the temple. And then the temple is completed in 516 BC, which is 70 years, 70 years from the time the temple is destroyed to the time the temple is rebuilt. And it's rebuilt in part because of the prophecy that comes through people like Haggai. So if you got your Bible, we'll be in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. So we're going to see that name several times, Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is the, I'm going to ask you every time, Zerubbabel is the governor, right? The governor, right? He's the governor. So he's he's the leader. Of course, he was appointed, but he's also a descendant of David, right? And so he is, he is this picture of God's chosen ruler, king, and then always sort of in partnership with Zerubbabel is Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who is the high priest. Good, you guys are getting it. Okay, so Zerubbabel is the governor, and Joshua is the high priest. Good, and so they work together, and, you know, I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying Jesus is both the prophet 
like, like Haggai. He is the ruler, like Zerubbabel, the king, and he is the priest, like Joshua, right? So he is the prophet and the priest and the king. And all of these people together sort of represent and play the role that the Messiah, the ultimate prophet and priest and king will play. So again, just picture in your mind sort of what's going on in the, in the history right now. You, you have these people that are living in their homeland and you have much earlier going back in time, you have Jerusalem, the place where God is, the place where the temple is, the place where God has given to them and they're living together with God, but because of their sin, it's destroyed in rubble and they're carried off as slaves into captivity. Now, again, I say this all the time, every time we talk about the captivity, but I can't even really imagine what that would be like. Can you? Can you imagine what it would be like? Imagine, again, we don't really have anything to compare it to, and so it's really hard for us, because even if we say Washington, D.C., because that's sort of the capital of our nation, it doesn't carry the same weight as what Jerusalem would have carried for them, because we don't have any promises of God about the perpetuation of our capital, but they had promises from God, and God lived with them in their capital. Their capital buildings, their monument wasn't just a building. This was God's house. And so when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple and it was left in rubble and the Jews as God's people were taken off in chains into captivity, transported and exiled to Babylon, we really can't even wrap our minds around how emotionally devastating that would be, not only for that generation, but for every generation afterward. This is huge. The people that had been brought out of Egypt, that had been freed from their slavery, had now become slaves again. They had become captives again. Babylon has become the new Egypt. But then, just like there was an exodus from Egypt, there is a return from their exile. And so now, in Haggai's day, they've come back from Babylon and they're living again in Jerusalem, right? But the problem is, is that they've been living there for 18 years, almost two decades, and the temple is still in ruins. And everything is just a trash heap. It's just awful. Constant reminder of their sin that had taken them there in the first place, their sin that had been the reason the temple had been brought down in the first place, and sort of just everything being on hold. All of the, the prophets, when the prophets had told them before all of that happened, you know, you're going to be taken off into captivity and all of these bad things are coming to you, there were always promises of restoration and things are going to be good again. In fact, things in the future are going to be better and brighter than they were in the past. But now, all of that is just sort of on hold. They're just sitting there doing nothing. So verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So there's, there's the complaint. There's what the people are saying. What are they saying? It's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord, right? We, that, that'll be later. We'll rebuild that later. We'll get around to that. We've got other things to take care of now. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet 
Is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So what does he mean by paneled houses? Your nice, fancy, one translation says luxurious houses. What is he saying to them? What is God through Haggai saying to them? He's saying, look, look at the situation. You've come back. And have they left their houses lying in ruins? No, they're, they're rebuilding their houses. In fact, they're making their houses nice and, and paneled and luxurious. And they're living in their luxurious houses while the temple lies in ruins. Verse 5, now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And that's going to be our key phrase for this whole book. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about it. Just stop. Think about it. Again, the prophets leading up to the captivity, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, leading up to the exile, were telling the people to consider their ways. Stop doing what you're doing. Your actions, your sin, your idolatry, your injustice, it's, it's going to cause this humongous fall. And now, after they've come back, the prophets are still saying, consider your ways. Wake up. Look at what you're doing. Look at how you're living. And what's the problem here? Here the problem is, you're building and living in your nice, luxurious paneled houses while the temple of God lies in ruins. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. I, I, I just love it. I mean, these, these problems, I mean, the, the poignancy of the way things are described. I mean, think about all of the action words. I, I circled them in mind. Sown, eat, drink, clothe yourself, earn, so are they doing things? Yes. Are they busy? Yes. Are they farming? Yep. Are they, are they trying to have something to eat? Yes. Trying to have something to drink? Yes. Working hard, earning money? Yes, yes, yes. But what do they have to show for it? Nothing. You're sowing, but you have nothing to, to harvest. You're eating, but you're never full. You're drinking, but you're still thirsty. You're, you're, you're earning money and you're putting it in a sack and the sack has holes in it and there's nothing left. And Haggai wants them to see, do you know why? Do you know why? You're working hard. You're doing all kinds of stuff. You're super busy little beavers just going, going, going and doing, 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 but you have nothing. There's a drought. There's a famine. You don't have food. You're planting and you're not harvesting anything. Why is that? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, that phrase, consider your ways. Wake up. Think about what you're doing. Think about how you're living. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you 
busies himself with his own house. I mean, there's really very little to misunderstand in the first chapter of Haggai, right? I mean, he's just really clear. It's not, there's no, like, poetry or metaphor or figures of speech, really. I mean, it's really just very straightforward. You don't have anything. You're hungry and thirsty and you have no money, not because you're not busy, not because you're not doing things, but because you are busy. What does he say? You are busy with your own house and my house lies in ruin. Now, on the one hand, you could say, wow, but really, I mean, haven't they, they've they've really kind of learned their lesson, right? Because we went from last week when we talked about Zephaniah, I mean, the big thing there was idolatry, right? And their idolatry was going to cause the downfall and the destruction of Jerusalem, right? We talked about how they were worshiping Baal, they're worshiping Baal, they're they're worshiping these idols and engaging in this horrible, bad, pagan idolatry. And now... They're not worshiping those idols anymore, right? But they kind of are. What was the the purpose of worshiping an idol? Why would you worship the goddess of fertility? Why would you worship the god of war? Why would you worship the god of the sun or the moon god or whatever god it would be? Why, Why worship those gods? Well, the same reason you rub a lucky rabbit's foot, right? You know, because you think by doing whatever little superstitious thing you do that you are going to get a good practical result, right? That's really what you're serving. That's really what you're chasing is that thing. And whatever it is that you have to give your loyalty to, whatever God it is that you have to worship in order to have lots of babies, or in order to have a great harvest, or in order to be victorious in battle, or in order to have money in the bank, in order to have food on the table, whatever it is you have to do to make sure you have food to eat, or water to drink, or a roof over your head, whatever it is you have to do, even if it's give your loyalty to whatever God, or worship whatever God, or do whatever ritual, you're going to do it. Why? Because for you, that thing, a great harvest, lots of babies, a name that is perpetuated and is honored, victory in battle, the success of your people, whatever it is, that thing is your God. It is ultimate to you. It's really, idolatry really is self-serving, isn't it? That's why people serve and worship idols. That's why people have always served and worshiped idols, is they're really serving their own Pleasure, And so they're worshiping, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, worshiping the created, the creature, rather than the creator, and giving the glory that's due to God to created things, because they're serving their own self-interests. And that's still the problem here. They're not necessarily carving something out of wood or stone or metal to bow down and worship but they're still serving their own self-interests. And what good is it doing? I mean, that's really the key to all of this, isn't it? What what good is it doing? What good is serving your own self-interest really doing? Because you're working really hard. You're busying yourself. You're earning money, but you're putting it in a bag with holes. You're eating, but you're never full. 
You're drinking, but you're still thirsty. You're planting, but you will not harvest. You, what does he say? You gather it all and I blow it away because you're serving yourself and not me. And so here's a thought. It's not in your best interest to serve your own interests, right? It's not in your best interest to serve your own interests. It's it's much like what Jesus said, isn't it? If you love your life, you will lose it. And whoever wants to gain his life will, for my sake, lose it. I know it's counterintuitive, right? Jesus says, if you want to live, the only way for you to live, the only way for you to live forever is to be willing to die for my sake. And then Jesus goes through in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember? And he says, you're worried about all kinds of stuff and you chase after all of this stuff. Am I going to have food to eat tomorrow? Am I going to have clothes to wear tomorrow? Am I going to have a roof over my head tomorrow? And you're chasing it and chasing it and chasing it. And the only way to actually make sure that you have a roof over your head and food to eat and clothes to wear is to stop worrying so much about those and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. See, when you seek the interests of God, when you seek the will of God, when you live your life to please God and do his will, When you build first, in this case, when you build first the temple of God and you say, listen, guys, come on, we got to build the house of God. We've got to build the temple. We've got to rebuild the temple. Instead of busying yourself working on your own little house, when you do that, God is saying through Haggai, I'm going to take care of the other stuff. I'm going to make sure that you have food to eat. I'm going to make sure you have a roof over your head and I'm going to make sure you have clothes to wear. I'm going to make sure that when you plant, you actually harvest. I'm going to make sure that when you eat, you're actually full. I'm going to make sure that when you put money in your money bag, it's still there. But in order for that to happen, you've got to stop seeking those things. In order to live, you have to be willing to die. In order to keep your life, you have to be willing to lose it. In order to have, you've got to let go. And that's Jesus' entire message, isn't it? That's that's what it's always been to be God's faithful people. But when we do what the, as Jesus says, the Gentiles do, worried about all of these things and chasing after all of these things, in the end we have nothing. Nothing. Because as Jesus asked, what if a man gains the whole world What does it profit him if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? He loses his life. What good is it to accumulate wealth for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years and then you die and it's gone? Isn't that his whole point about the the fool who has this huge harvest? And he thinks, "This this is awesome. I got so much food. I don't... I don't know what to do with all my food. I'm gonna, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll, I'll be able to keep all of this stuff that I've harvested. And God said, wrong. No, you won't. You won't be able to keep any of it. Not even a grain of it because tonight you're dead. And then what's gonna happen to all of your stuff? Everything we chase after when we do it in self-interest, 
selfishly and self-absorbed and we think, I just, I've got to get more and I've got to get more. We put it into a bag with holes in it because we're going to die and lose it all. But when we say, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he will feed us and clothe us. It's like the, the apostles asked Jesus. They said, listen, we've given up everything for you. We've given up homes and families and jobs and careers. We've given up all of this. And Jesus says, if you follow me, then you'll have as much, if not more, in the age to come. But when you seek after all of these things, you don't get them. You don't get what you're seeking after when you seek after those things. You get nothing. Nothing. And that's the problem here. It's not really in our best interest to seek after our self-interest. What's really in our best interest is to seek after the interests of God, is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So God tells them, stop. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. You're busying yourself with your own little house while my house lies in ruins, and that's why you're experiencing a famine. That's why you, you're eating and you're not full, while you have money and, and at the end of the day you have none. Verse 10, therefore the heavens above the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. I mean, can you, again, this is why we talked about this in our myth of the fresh start, remember? Because can you imagine being with Zerubbabel, coming back to Jerusalem, right? I mean, you, maybe you're 20 years old or 25 years old, and maybe all you've ever known in your life is being in Babylon. And you've heard these stories about Jerusalem, and you know that the, the golden age of Jerusalem is still in the future, and you know what the prophets have said, and you know that God is going to bless your people, and you just can't wait to get back to Jerusalem, and everything's going to be great and wonderful, and you kind of start working on the temple when you get there, and then there's opposition and persecution, and you're like, oh, I don't even know if it's worth it, and you just kind of give up for a little bit, and then things get worse. And they just get worse and worse and worse. And there's a drought and famine and there's no food to eat. And you're like, this stinks. This is horrible. This isn't what I, this isn't what I thought it was going to be like coming back from exile. In fact, I still feel like we're exiled, right? The exile hasn't ended. Just because, just because we're back in Jerusalem doesn't mean the exile has ended because we're still, there's no food. There's no water. There's no blessings. There's no goodness. This is all just rotten and it stinks. And God says, it's because you really still haven't learned your lesson. Because you're not loving me with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. If you would love me with all of your mind and your soul and your strength, then I would bless you. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, who is the... Governor, good, good. Zerubbabel, the governor, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. They listened, right? 
So Haggai tells them, here's what God says. Stop. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And they do. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And I love, I love these prophetic books, not just for the audience that was there and experiencing this for the first time, but we have to remember, as we've been saying, that these messages were preserved not only for the people of Haggai's day, but for the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, because it would be five hundred years before the Messiah would finally come. And even for us that are continuing to wait for the Messiah's second coming, these words encourage us. So there's both, there's both sides of the prophetic message. One, consider your ways, right? Wake up, wake up. Love the Lord with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then there's the other side of it, and I'm with you, I'm with you. I haven't left you, declares the Lord. Verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. So God through the prophetic word, stirs them up and they go to work. And this time they go to work not for their own interests, but for the interests of the kingdom, for the interests of God's rule, for the interests of God's glory. They go to work doing the will of God. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? So what house are we talking about? Temple, right? So who, who saw the temple? So there were some of the, the older people that still remember the original, the first temple. And the first temple was huge, glorious. Remember Solomon constructed the temple. David made all the preparation for it and then Solomon becomes king and he builds this huge, glorious, beautiful temple and that was the temple that was torn down and now as they begin to rebuild it, it's a shack by comparison. I mean, imagine, again, imagine Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, I wish I had a better example but I don't, but imagine if you lived in Washington, D.C. and and a foreign force destroyed it and then carried you off as a slave somewhere else and then you were carried off as a teenager maybe and you remember what the White House looked like or what the Capitol building looked like and then decades later as an old person you come back and you come back and you begin as a people to rebuild the the places that you used to know and where the Capitol building once stood, it's beautiful rotunda and all of that. Now there's like a log cabin, right? And you're like, okay, well, you know, at least it's something, I guess. But it's nothing like it was before. It's not what we thought it was going to be. It's not what it, what it used to be. Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now, be strong. So again, there's this warning and punishment, but also comfort. 
Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for I am, what? With you. Work because I am with you. Your labor is not in vain, right? Your labor is not in vain. Because of the promises that you have, because I'm with you, because I'm going to bless this work, work because it really does matter. Can you imagine how much they would need that encouragement? Again, not just in Haggai's day, but in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the generation after that for 500 years. And today, 2,000 years after the Messiah has come, we still need that encouragement, don't we? Work because I am with you and your labor is not in vain, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Isn't it interesting? Maybe kind of a side note, but almost every time, almost every time that I can think of that scripture that God tells his people, don't be afraid, fear not. And that's one of the most repeated commands in the Bible. Don't be afraid. And I've told you before that as a worrier, a natural born worrier, you think you're a worrier, I'm twice the worrier you are. I don't care how worrier you are, I'm more worrier. But when I would read those passages in scripture, don't worry, be anxious for nothing, don't be afraid, it would make me worry more because then I was like, well, now I'm kind of worried about being worried and am I doing something wrong because I'm worried? And then I would just be this vicious cycle. But almost every time God tells his people, don't be afraid, don't be anxious. Be strong and courageous. It's tied to this idea. My spirit remains in your midst. I am with you. It's the same thing a father tells his child, isn't it? I I don't tell my kids don't be afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, sometimes I tell them that. But there are things, don't tell them, but there are things to be afraid of. But most of the time when I tell them, don't be afraid, it's because I'm here and I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I'm here. And if there is a boogeyman, I'll get him. Don't worry. You don't have to worry about it. I got this. It's my responsibility, not yours. So trust me. So trust me. And this is the same thing God told his people from the very beginning, going into the land. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. There's not going to be enough food. There's not going to be enough shelter. There's not going to be enough protection. That's when we get in trouble, church. When we're afraid, that's when we get in trouble. When we say, I have to do it myself. I have to look out for number one. If I don't protect me, who will? If I don't feed me, who will? If I don't give myself something to drink, then who will? And God says, what am I, chopped liver? I've made you these promises. I will protect you and take care of me. Trust me. Trust me and seek first the kingdom of God. And if you die, yet shall you live. I'm going to bring you back from the dead. You have nothing to worry about. If you trust me and you don't fear and you walk in my ways, you have nothing to worry about. I'll take care of it all. Just leave it up to me. Just trust me. Obey me. Don't fear because I'm with you. Work. Work. Stop putting so much time in your own houses. Stop being afraid that you're not going to have a house to live in and build my house. 
Again, it's, it's not because God needs a house to live in, right? It's not like God's saying, I'm homeless, you know? It's not like God has a sign, you know, we'll, we'll work for a house, right? I mean, God, God isn't homeless. He doesn't need the temple to live in. The temple is part of his plan. And in this generation, it's a part of them trusting him. A part of them saying, I'm going to seek your interests above my own. I'm going to do your will, not my own. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I totally ran out of time, didn't I? I'm sorry. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He says something better is coming than has ever been. And the greater glory is going to happen in this house than happened in the last house or is happening right now. Now, you could say, well, maybe that was when Herod made the temple really beautiful. But I think it's when God himself came into the temple in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God came back to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, God made peace. Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no, we're running out of time. Let me skip ahead. But so he asked them, listen, if, if a priest is, is carrying food and he's holy and he touches the food, does the food become holy? And the answer is no. But if somebody's defiled and they touch something holy, does the holy thing become defiled? And the answer is yes. And so his point is, if you're defiled, then everything you're doing is also defiled. Everything you're building is also defiled. And what you need is cleansing. And God is going to bring that cleansing. Let's skip to the very last slide. I apologize. I thought I had lots of time. But again, again, the message to the people of Haggai's day is the same message to the people of our day. As you wait for the Lord, as you wait for him to keep his promises and do what he says he will do, consider your ways. Think about how you're living. Be faithful. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Work because he's with you. Fear not because his spirit is in your midst. And not only has he done a great thing in Jesus, but he will do a great thing with us and for us and in us if we will only consider our ways and love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, you have been so very good to us, so gracious to us, so merciful to us and so kind to us. And Father, we ask that in light of your word and in light of your son, in light of what he's done for us, that you will help us to consider our ways. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.